Book Three, Chapter Three of Les Miserables, translated by Elizabeth F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sean O'Hara. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Book Three, in the year 1817, Chapter Three, Four and Four. It is hard nowadays to picture to oneself what a pleasure trip of students and grisettes to the country was like forty-five years ago. The suburbs of Paris are no longer the same. The physiognomy of what may be called circumparisian life has changed completely in the last half-century. Where there was the cuckoo, there is the railway car. Where there was a tender boat, there is now the steamboat. People speak of the comp nowadays as they spoke of St. Cloud in those days. The Paris of 1862 is a city which has France for its outskirts. The four couples conscientiously went through with all the country follies possible at that time. The vacation was beginning, and it was a warm, bright summer day. On the preceding day, Favorite, the only one who knew how to write, had written the following to Tholomyes in the name of the four. It is a good hour to emerge from happiness. That is why they arose at five o'clock in the morning. They went to St. Cloud by the coach looked at the dry cascade and exclaimed, This must be very beautiful when there is water. They breakfasted at Tetenois, where Karstang had not yet been. They treated themselves to a game of ring-throwing under the kung of trees of the Grand Fountain. They ascended Diogenes' lantern. They gambled for macaroons at the roulette establishment at Pont de Sevres, picked up bouquets at Pateau, brought reed-pipes at Neuilly, ate apple-tarts everywhere, and were perfectly happy. Young girls rustled and chatted like warblers escaped from their cage. It was a perfect delirium. From time to time they bestowed little taps on young men. Matutinal intoxication of life. Adorable years. The wings of the dragonfly quiver. Oh, whoever you may be, do you not remember? Have you rambled through the brushwood, holding aside the branches on account of the charming head which is coming on behind you? Have you slid laughing down a slope all wet with rain, with a beloved woman holding your hand and crying, Ah, my new boots! What a state they are in! Let us say at once that that merry obstacle, a shower, was lacking in the case of this good-humoured party, although Favourite had said, as they set out, magisterial and maternal tone, the slugs are crawling in the pass, a sign of rain, children. All four were madly pretty. A good old classic poet, then famous, a good fellow who had an Eleanor, Monsieur le Chevalier de la Brise, as he strolled that day beneath the chestnut trees of St. Cloud, saw them pass about ten o'clock in the morning and exclaimed, there's one too many of them, as he thought of the graces. Favorite, Blanchevelle's friend, one aged three and twenty, the old one, ran on in front under the great green boughs, jumped the ditches, stalked distractedly over bushes, and presided over this merry-making with the spirit of a young female fawn. Zephine and Dahlia, whom chance had made beautiful in such a way that they set each other off when they were together, and completed each other, never left each other, more from an instinct of coquetry than from friendship and clinging to each other they assumed english poses the first keepsakes had just made their appearance melancholy was dawning for women as later on byronism dawned for men and the hair of the tender sex began to droop dolefully zephine and dahlia had their hair dressed in rolls Bistolier and femille who were engaged in discussing their professors explained to fantine the difference that existed between monsieur delvincourt and monsieur blondeau Blachevelle seemed to have been created expressly to carry Favourite's single-bordered imitation India shawl of Ternaux manufacture on his arms on Sunday. Tholomyes followed, dominating the group. He was very gay, but one felt the force of government in him. 
There was dictation in his joviality. His principal ornament was a pair of trousers of elephant leg pattern of nankeen, with straps of braided copper wire. He carried a stout rattan worth two hundred francs in his hand, and he treated himself to everything, a strange thing called a cigar in his mouth. Nothing was sacred to him. He smoked. That Thelemise is astounding, said the others with veneration. What trousers! What energy! As for Fantine, she was a joy to behold. Her splendid teeth had evidently received an office from God. Laughter. She preferred to carry her little hat of sewed straw, with its long white strings, in her hand rather than on her head. Her thick blonde hair, which was inclined to wave, and which easily uncoiled, and which it was necessary to fasten up incessantly, seemed made for the flight of the Galatea under the willows. Her rosy lips babbled enchantingly. The corners of her mouth voluptuously turned up, as in the antique masks of Origany, had an air of encouraging the audacious. But her long, shadowy lashes drooped discreetly over the jollity of the lower part of her face, as though to call a halt. There was something indescribably harmonious and striking about her entire dress. She wore a gown of mauve barege, little reddish-brown buskins, whose ribbons traced necks on her fine, white, open-worked stockings, and that sort of muslin spencer, a Marseille invention, whose name, Kenazo, a corruption of the words kins ahout, pronounced after the fashion of Canbière, signifies fine weather, heat, and midday. The three others, less timid as we have already said, wore low-necked dresses without disguise, which in summer, beneath flower-adorned hats, are very graceful and enticing. But by the side of these audacious outfits, Blonde Fantine's Canazo, with its transparencies, its indiscretions, its reticence, concealing and displaying at one and the same time, seemed an alluring godsend of decency, and the famous court of love, presided by the Vicomtesse de Sette, with the sea-green eyes, would, perhaps, have awarded the prize for coquetry to this canazo, in the contest for the prize of modesty. The most ingenious is, at times, the wisest. This does happen. Brilliant of face, delicate of profile, with eyes of a deep blue, heavy lids, feet arched and small, wrists and ankles admirably formed, a white skin, which here and there allowed the azure branching of the veins to be seen, joy, a cheek that was young and fresh, the robust throat of the Juno Vagina, a strong and supple nape of the neck, shoulders modeled as though by Gustave, with a voluptuous dimple in the middle, visible through the muslin, a gaiety cooled by dreaminess, sculptural and exquisite, such was Fantine and beneath these feminine adornments and these ribbons one could divine a statue, and in that statue a soul. Fantine was beautiful without being conscious of it. Those rare dreamers, mysterious priests of the beautiful, who silently confront everything with perfection, would have caught a glimpse in this little working woman, through the transparency of her Parisian grace, of the ancient sacred euphony. This daughter of the shadows was thoroughbred. She was beautiful in the two ways, style and rhythm. Style is the form of the ideal. Rhythm is its movement. We have said that Fantine was joy. She was also modesty. To an observer who studied her attentively, that which breathed from her athwart all the intoxication of her age, the season, and her love affair, was an invincible expression of reserve and modesty. She remained a little astonished. This chaste astonishment is the shade of difference that separates Psyche from Venus. Fantine had the long, white fingers of the Vestal Virgin, who stirs the ashes of the sacred fire with a golden pin. Although she would have refused nothing to Tholomyes, as we shall have more than ample opportunity to see, her face and her pose were supremely virginal. A sort of serious and almost austere dignity suddenly overwhelmed her at certain times. 
and there is nothing more singular and disturbing than to see gaiety become so suddenly extinct there, and meditation succeed to cheerfulness without any transition state. This sudden and sometimes severely accentuated gravity resembled the disdain of a goddess. Her brow, her nose, her chin presented that equilibrium of outline which is quite distinct from equilibrium of proportion and from which harmony of countenance results in the very characteristic interval which separates the base of the nose from the upper lip she had that imperceptible and charming fold a mysterious sign of chastity which makes barbarossa fall in love with the diana found in the treasures of iconia love is a fault so be it fantine was innocence floating high over fault End of Book 3, Chapter 3